From Toronto, Canada, this is Cannabis Law in Canada, a podcast dedicated to exploring legal issues in the Canadian cannabis industry. Hello, my name is Russell Bennett, and I am a cannabis lawyer. And I love saying that. How do you balance being a law professor with being a constitutional lawyer? How do you figure out what cases to take and what's meaningful to you? in the face of, you know, uh, trying to change the world. In this first episode of Cannabis Law in Canada, I talked to Professor Emeritus Alan Young, who's a retired law professor now from Osgoode Hall Law School, who has been one of Canada's seminal constitutional lawyers and an advocate of cannabis legalization for decades. Uh, Alan uh, had an incredible career starting right at the beginning when he clerked with Justice, Chief Justice Bohr Alaskan of the Supreme Court of Canada, and founded things like the Innocence Project, uh, which investigates and overturns cases of wrongful conviction. He is uh, one of the top 25 most influential lawyers uh, recognized by Canadian Lawyer Magazine in the complete uh, Canadian justice system, and has awarded very, very high uh, prestigious uh, medals like the Diane Martin Medal for Social Justice through law. Alan is also an incredible, engaging personality. And uh, I first met him in 1997 when I was filming my documentary Stoned, Hemp Nation on Trial. Alan was the co-counsel for Chris Clay, a young man who started Canada's first hemp store in London, Ontario called Hemp Nation. And Chris faced four life sentences for selling marijuana seeds and plant cuttings from his store. The court case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which gave Canada pause at not only the racist reasons for the drug law, but also dispelled the negative myths attributed to cannabis. Alan Young has had an incredible experience challenging the constitutionality of the gambling laws, obscenity laws, and the cannabis laws. Uh, but he's not just a lawyer and not just a law professor, but he's also got an incredible creative side. And we explore that a little in this interview as well. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. So uh, welcome to the show. Yeah. You're my very first guest on this podcast. Does the show have a name? Um, Canada, Canada, Canada's, what is the name? Canada's <laughs> Cannabis Law. Cannabis law in Canada. Gotcha. How about okay. that? Okay. It's a very. I'm, I'm keeping it very boring. Yeah, yeah, and Generic. Yeah. I've actually I, maybe I'll change it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're talking about. Cannabis law. Cannabis law. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's okay. the theme, I guess. Yeah. Today, uh, and you have a, a long history with cannabis. Sure. The cannabis laws, and uh, and and so maybe what we could do because it's such a broad yeah a broad area of discussion, is to go back to your very first experience that you can remember with cannabis. Sure. Uh, though I've smoked too much cannabis to remember those things, of course. Of course. No, I remember it vividly. See, look, I was um, 12, 13 years old and very into uh, the 60s student revolutionary stuff and reading all the books, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin. So from a young age, I wanted to experiment with psychedelics and cannabis. And I remember we were 13. It was a group of us from our Hebrew school. Yes. And we're going to go see Led Zeppelin at O'Keefe Center, the first time Led Zeppelin oh, was in Canada. It's amazing. And a friend of mine said, can you steal one of your dad's cigars? I said, sure. But I didn't know what it was for. And 
I came out with the cigar. He had this little piece of mud. It looked like a piece of mud. He said it was hashish. And he put it on the end of the uh, cigar, and we all took a little hit. This it, is your dad's? My dad's cigar. Cigar, but your friend's hash. Yeah, exactly. Okay. He was one of the cool kids, even ah, though he was only yes. 13. So he knew how to smoke hash. I don't think so. It was weird. I mean, none of us got off. It was just oh. a stupid thing. And I, I sort of forgot about it for a couple of years until I moved from the private school to the public school. Yes. And now I was with this diversified crowd that included you know, young criminals and things like that. What, what school did you go to? Uh, York Mills. You know, it was just down the street from where I lived, yeah, yeah, yeah. where I grew up. And even though it's, I, it's a more upper middle class yes. school, there still were pockets of these degenerates, which I gravitated towards. And so I remember the guy on the motorcycle, I'm not going to use his name, but he had a great name. <laughs> okay. And I bought, a, I called a nickel bag. That's what we called it back there, $5. And I went with my friend Bernie behind our tennis club that we played tennis in. Yeah. And we rolled these joints that fell apart. We smoked the whole nickel bag and had absolutely no effect. And that's actually very common for many people. First this time, is, the, this is right. one of the things people have to realize about cannabis. It is not an overpowering drug. Right from the beginning, mm -hmm. the fact that you don't even recognize the intoxicant effect shows why it shouldn't have been criminalized. Right. So we had no effect there, but I was not going to give up. And then about a month later, we bought another nickel bag. And this time to make sure that I felt some intoxicant effect, we drank right. at the same time we smoked. Oh. And I have no clue what was affecting me at the time. And it was the first time I ever really drank heavily and I got sick, which was great because I always knew my limits for drinking and actually stopped drinking a few years later. But cannabis stuck. Alcohol didn't. Alcohol was just for getting goofy, which is fine when you're a teenager. But I actually believe that cannabis could lead to some form of, not wisdom or enlightenment, that's so pompous, but expansion of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Or as Aldous Huxley, one of the guys I was reading, opening up the reducing valve of the brain to see interconnections between things in the world that you don't see. And that was my interest in cannabis. Uh, I did not do drugs like my friends who'd say, hey, let's drop acid and go downtown. It's like, why would you do that? Right. The most important determinant of any uh, intoxicant is set and setting, not the drug. Mm -hmm. So I was always very careful at the beginning times to pick the right set and right setting to experience it. And before I knew it, by grade 12, I was pretty much getting high every day at school because school was boring as hell. Mm -hmm, totally. So it was a big part of my culture, a big part of my uh, group of friends. And I pretty much dropped it when but I got out of high school. Did did it open up the reducing valve for you? Did, Don't did, really does know. It, does you know, it currently? <clears throat> okay, here's the way I, I see about all drugs. Okay. It's called the law of diminishing returns. They give you value yeah. at the beginning, right. but the more you use them, they don't. Um, the idea about enlightenment or wisdom is not to get high, but to be high. Mm. And the problem with drugs is you get high and you come down. So you gain little kernels of truth or alternative perceptions, but it doesn't change you in any fundamental way. So I do believe it had an effect on me. I do believe it enhanced what I call my critical faculties. Uh, the fact that I question authority. And that's why cannabis was outlawed, because it leads to critical thinking. And so it wasn't about the drug. It was about government controlling the thought patterns of young people, because if people were very critical, they may drop out of society, go off the grid, go into communes. Remember, this is the 60s. Mm -hmm. So it definitely did. But I also saw friends of mine who smoke cannabis that still had the same mindset about everything. Nothing changed in terms of their perspective. So I think it's what you want out of it. 
And I will tell you this, and I've always said this, cannabis is a chameleon drug. It takes on the characteristics of the user. Okay. Other drugs have uniform effect. You drink a certain amount of alcohol, you're going to stumble on your face. I don't care who you are. Right. Cannabis, for some people, makes you giggly. For some people, it makes you introspective. Uh, it, that's what's interesting about it. You control the experience, which is the very reason why it should have never been criminalized, because only drugs that control you, the government should take a look at to determine whether it's in the public interest to criminalize. So that's a beautiful way to dovetail into the criminalization of it. Mm -hmm. So can you reel back the decades, back to the 20s, maybe even the aughts of 1900? And Yeah, you and know, can I, you, I'm not that old. You do know that. I know you okay, are there. Sure. No, yeah, 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 you, okay. You're looking very good. Yeah, thanks. But, <laughs> but, but no, I mean, I, 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 I want you to give me the, uh, the story, if you could, of how this became legal, uh, illegal. How did cannabis become legal in Canada? Well, it's really an international movement. And what it was was Western liberal democracies were associating various drugs with ethnic cultures and immigration was on the rise. And so in order to put down certain immigrant groups, they criminalized their drug of choice. And cannabis was associated with Hispanics mm -hmm. and the movement of Mexican migration. And so... Everything about the early days of all drug prohibition, it's based on horrible xenophobia and racism. I mean, the things that were said about the Chinese and opium in Canada by William Lyon Mackenzie are astonishing. Mm -hmm. Emily Murphy, who wrote about cannabis and, and demonized it. So it was unusual because alcohol being associated with Western liberal culture got a free pass, though we had a little attempt to, to yes. prohibit it too. But there's no question in my mind that cannabis, cocaine, and opiates were all being banned because they were associated with certain cultural groups that we wanted to take away their fun. Mm -hmm. And we made hysterical claims like, oh my God, you smoke cannabis, you're going to jump out a window, you're going to kill your parents. Harry Anslinger was given the portfolio um, to look at this, and they created Bureau of Dangerous Drugs or whatever they called it. Yes. Once government creates an institution they become self-perpetuating. They'll do everything they can not to lose their jobs. Nobody knew about cannabis. Nobody cared about cannabis. But Anslinger made sure that by the time he was finished, that people were deathly afraid of it. And we all know the funny Reefer Madness movie that comes out of that era. They had to have histrionic claims to make people so scared that not only would they not use the drugs, but they probably wouldn't interact with the Mexicans and the black Americans and all that type of stuff. So the story is really simple, quite frankly. And then you get other stuff going on with cannabis, which makes it more complicated because it had industrial use. And you actually can make decent paper, not have to clear cut forests. Right. Well, William Hurst uh, had 20 newspapers and was clear cutting everywhere. And he sure as hell did not want cannabis to become an industrial product too. So his newspapers would publish any story about a young person smoking cannabis and driving off a cliff. Right. So he was part of it too. Everyone had some self-interest. There is no purity in the public policy decision-making relating to prohibition of lifestyles or drugs. It's always based on majority morality, imposing themselves on disenfranchised minorities, always. And for you as a, as a lawyer and a professor at Osgoode Hall, um, how did you decide to do it? Or were, were you, I mean, you, you had knowledge of the law, you had knowledge of the prohibition, you, did you have a personal 
um, a front to it in order oh, yeah. to challenge the law? Because I want I want to pivot now to to changing let, the law. Let me say there are early three, days there are with Chris three, Clay. Three P's. There are three P's. Three P words that led me to this: principal, professional, and uh, personal professional. Oh my God! Now there's another remember. one. Yeah, uh, pragmatic. Okay, the principal decision. Government should not tell people how to live their lives unless the consequences of their choice lead to enormous social upheaval, which okay. drugs don't do. So in principle, you should foster autonomous choice. Okay. Profession, personal. Yes. Uh, for me, I was a pot smoker. How dare the government of Canada or any government deem me a criminal? I'm a law-abiding, productive citizen, and I enjoyed cannabis. Yes. And I saw the same thing about my friends. Right. So professionally as a lawyer... When I got in, I saw how much time and money was being wasted on minor offenses. Mm -hmm. It's not just cannabis, by the way. Right. Our system is so clogged and dysfunctional because we overcharge. We use the criminal justice as a panacea for so all social evils. So once I became a lawyer slash law professor, I made it my job or my mandate to look at the overkill of criminal justice. And so I focused on a group of crimes called consensual crimes, okay. which is the principled idea of crimes that the participants want the activity. Right. And so I decided- What, what, what are some of those? Well, I'll give you examples. Okay. I show you the, the history. I decided I would make it my job to tack them sequentially one after another. There's about six or seven of them and, and you know, do some quality control on the criminal code. So the first one I did was pornography, obscenity simply because we had this huge revolution in pornography because of VHS in the 80s. And there was this huge power struggle going on between prohibitionists and libertarians on this. So with Mark Emery, who became Prince of Pot, I challenged the obscenity laws. That's how I met uh, Mark Emery back right. then. <clears throat> then I did gambling. I hate gambling. I think it's the biggest waste of money in the world. But I still recognize people's autonomous choice to want to waste their money that way. Then I did drug literature law. That was important for cannabis to knock out any uh, the prohibition on literature that extolled the virtues of illicit drugs. Right. I wasn't going to touch cannabis. Oh. Because we were still in the Reagan Mulroney dark era of the 80s. Right. And cannabis was seen all drugs were seen as somewhat as a social evil and was humorless uh, in terms of our approach to it even though cannabis is actually quite funny. So I waited till I saw some signs of cultural change. And I'll give you like a stupid example of it. American television was my barometer. So in the early 90s, let's say Beverly Hills 90210, that show, right? Yes. If Brandon or one of the guys smoked pot, you know the next episode he'd be in rehab, right? <laughs> you know that. But then around 93, 94, The Simpsons, which I was a Simpsons fanatic, started making a lot of pot jokes. The smell in Otto's jacket, Otto was high all the time. Mm -hmm. When American network television could have a laugh about cannabis, then I knew we were socially speaking it was become more accepted I so i right. knocked out the drug literature law in 95 cannabis culture was circulating high times was circulated i waited another two years as i did my research and that's what led to the first constitutional challenge the marijuana possession offense in 97 with chris clay which you were a part of because you filmed that particular trial stoned yeah, yeah. Stone, stone was um my intro to cannabis and learning about the industry and learning about the myths of that, course. Because when I, when I went to law school, the same same as you, I experienced great joy in smoking a joint with some friends and watching 
you know, silly movies sure. like Wayne's World or whatever, and having deep discussions and having the portal removed from your, you know, your brain and that just a, a little holiday yeah, from the, the mundanity of law school and realizing that so many lawyers actually smoked weed. Well, actually, you won't remember this, the details of the Clay case, but I remember a lot of details. And I remember one of the studies that I presented before Justice McCart was a study done at Osgoode Hall Law School the year before I became a student there in 1977, where I believe 75% of law students said they smoked pot, and then 80% said they would continue to do so <laughs> after being called to the bar. Fantastic. And I just wanted to use that study to show that law has no deterrent impact, does not govern people's choices. Even people who are in a profession that is demonizing cannabis would still maintain their interest in it. Law does not really dictate behavior. Right. You, you, you try to control or influence people's behavior through discussion. Law is the last resort. You punish people for breaking rules. But if you actually think the law changes people's attitudes or behaviors, you got to do a little more studying about it. It actually is a pretty ineffective institution. So how did you uh, get seconded <clears throat> to work on Chris Clay's case? How, how did that happen? I don't get seconded. Okay. Uh, the beauty of my career if there is any beauty, because I, I, there's a lot of it I didn't like, was I got paid for teaching. And then on the side, I would pick and choose what I wanted to work on. I see. So I always picked the case and then found people to be the poster children. Okay. So I had met Chris and Pete Young, and I told them that I was doing this research and I thought I was in a position where I could mount a credible challenge under the charter. This was before... They were arrested? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was starting to do the work after I knocked out the drug literature. Oh, in I fact, see. I forgot. The first thing I did was in 96, I got the first hemp licenses for farmers. No way. I got the government to open up uh, cultivation of hemp by distinguishing it from intoxicant cannabis. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. I was very proud of that. And through that, I started to do more research. I don't remember how I met Chris, but remember, I was connected with Mark Emery. Yes. Who was also in London. Wasn't Chris Mark's protege? Chris they were... and Mark kind of started to hang out in Vancouver afterwards. But Mark may have introduced me to Chris. I can't remember. I remember uh, when, when, when I interviewed Mark, he said that he had, the one regret he had was that he didn't start Canada's first hemp store. It was Chris oh, who, yeah, who, yeah, yeah. who got Hemp Nation started. And Mark, then had, Mark, Mark, by the way, I don't want to talk about Mark. Right. But the Prince of Pot came to the pot issue pretty late in the story. Oh, okay. When I met him, in 91, doing his obscenity trial for a rap tape. He didn't smoke. Uh -huh. He ended up going to Asia, and he was, he was fed up with Canada. And he moved to Asia in the late 90s, uh, mid-90s, I mean, and they started smoking a lot of hash there. Right. And then he came back to Canada because he wasn't enjoying his experience there. He got ripped off. He wanted to buy a house. He got ripped off. And I guess he had the insight. He was an entrepreneur, really. And he realized something was going on in Vancouver with cannabis. He's an entrepreneur. So he went there and he slowly became the prince of pot. Right. Yeah. But uh, back but to you, Chris. So somehow you so met, I was met Chris I met, through Mark. Yeah. So I met with him. And I remember, I distinctly, now you're making me remember this stuff. It's hard for me. But I remember sitting with him and saying, you got to get charged and I can raise the challenge. Mm. Now I know how to do challenges without getting people charged, by the way. Oh. I did that with sex trade years later. But I said, you have to be charged. He goes, okay, I'll try. And so he decided he'd sell clones in his hemp store. Right. And unbelievable. <laughs> he got 
the first sale was an undercover cop because he advertised it, right? <laughs> right. I'm now selling clones. But he was selling seeds though first. I, I don't think... recall. He was all paraphernalia and hemp clothes. Okay. And then we moved into the small clones. Right. And as I said, the first That's purchase what... was a cop undercover. So then he got his possession for purpose charges and we were off to the races with the challenge. Right. Huh. Okay. Um, and was Chris uh, helpful as a plaintiff? Did Chris he... was a really nice guy. I like Chris a lot. And everything I've done in my career pretty much has been done without any resources or money. And it's odd because I'm so bad with money. Yeah, man, I can work well with no funds. And Chris I was very good at organizing um, the accommodations, picking up the witnesses at the airport. We had 17 witnesses coming from all around North America. And so I found him very professional mm -hmm. because, you know, sometimes you work with potheads. They're all over the place. Right? Right. I mean, I have to be honest about this. He was very professional. I actually don't think he was a huge pot smoker uh, to the best of my knowledge, but I can't recall. And so it wasn't like he was doing a lot of work, but I enjoyed doing with him because I've done other challenges mm -hmm. where the clients actually get in the way right. of the challenge. Yes. But he facilitated it. And then he came up with funny stuff that was good for us, like the victory bonds where... If people donated money, they would get a, a coupon to get one ounce of pot upon legalization, which is ah, funny so? because I saw him October 17th. He came to see me with Pete Young yes. and I reminded him and he said, yeah, some people have actually called <laughs> me and want to redeem the coupons. So, Did you get a bond? Did you have a bond? No, no, no. I, I got nothing out of doing this case except notoriety. You know, that was about it. So what, uh, so what happened with, so you had 17 experts from all across North America, talk about uh, the the. Oh, hold on a second. No problem. Hello. Hey, Hello. Hi, Chris. Hey. Yes, it is. Uh, Russell. Hey. It's Russell. Yeah. I'm. I'm you're okay. Not this is it. kind of stupid and weird because uh, I'm. Chris, it's Alan. I'm doing an interview hey. with Russell, and we just spoke about you for like five minutes, and then the phone rings. Is this a setup? Is this a setup? This is a setup, isn't this it? This is a setup. Okay, yeah, okay, okay. Because it was too big a coincidence. Okay, thank you, thank you. I wanted to surprise you. And you know what's interesting? Because you, you set me up in a bad way because you asked me what Chris was like. And That's I could have right. gone on and he's an asshole. And then you got him on the phone. Right. But I didn't no. say that. I said you're a great guy. Prince, a prince of men, a prince of men. <laughs> Hi, Alan. I'm good. So the last question, the last thing we we're talking about was the victory bonds. And I was mentioning how oh. I saw you on October 17th with Pete Young. And you told me some people had called and wanted to redeem the coupons. Yes, it's true. And actually, Pete was the first one to cash his in. <laughs> well, I hope he gave you a lot of money because I think Pete makes a lot of money now. He seems to be doing okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some of the potheads have gone on to uh, make money. Not yes. too many. Of Not them. all of them. Yeah, yes. yeah. So no, I'm still um, actually legalization almost broke me. I've been uh, hanging on for the last year, but my my uh, dispensary has been closed since October 15th. So we're trying to get licensed and it's taking forever. It hasn't been good for people in the yeah. cannabis community generally. And yeah. everything's changed to sort of online sales. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually harder to do the gray black market business 
than it was before. It's right. kind of weird. Yeah. It's kind of weird. It is. Now that it's legal, you'd think it'd be easier. But now they have municipal ways to shut you as opposed to criminal justice, which is a blunt instrument. So. That's right. I want to talk more, more about that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Chris, and maybe we can talk about that now, actually. Chris, so if you had continued to run your store, what, what would have happened? Well, um, so a few of my competitors decided to stay open, and one of them was actually raided on legalization day in Port Alberni. Um, but one of the largest chains on Vancouver Island, Trees, they kept operating until about um, a month ago, and uh, they received a few warnings. And they're also applying to get a license, but at the same time, they just kept operating, and they pushed it way too long. Finally, um, in BC, they have a community safety unit, it's called, uh, that's been tasked to shut down dispensaries. So they raided one tree's location. Um, trees announced, well, well, we're going to close all our locations in two weeks. And then the community safety unit came back the next day and raided them again. Um, and I think they've probably shot their chances of getting licensed now. So um, a few days before legalization here in BC, the Minister of um, Safety, I believe it, um, he basically he told the press, any of these shops that are still opening, if they want to get licensed, they better shut down before legalization. So even though it put a lot of patients um, in the lurch, especially this, like we had many senior citizens coming, um, it seemed in the long run it would be best to try to reopen as quickly as we can instead of pushing it and um, possibly ruining our chances of getting licensed. But unfortunately here, the municipality has dragged their feet. So it's taken them a whole year to come up with their cannabis retail policy. And until they had that in place, our hands were tied. Yeah. Do you, do you see another challenge, another constitutional challenge for this kind of uh, delay? This yes kind and of... no. Yes and no. I mean, we have to recognize that the law has changed. And I'm pretty sure Chris, myself, and you, I'm pretty sure we all not thrilled no. with how it's unraveled. It's really a corporate venture. Mm -hmm. But you're really just a whiner. Right. If you yeah. use the Constitution <laughs> to challenge the fact that it's a corporate venture, because everything in the world is a corporate venture. And I know we're rushing to the end, what's happening today, but no, I was fine. somewhat naive because I thought what I was doing was trying to open it up. So you just grow your own, you share with your friends, and it just became like a little cottage industry. I didn't actually know it would go this direction, but mm -hmm. I should have realized okay. that because when people would ask me in the 80s and 90s, will pot ever be legal? I always gave the same answer, when the money's there. Mm. So I kind of knew, right? but I didn't know it would be set up in a way that, let's say someone like Chris, can't function right. the way he used to, and my clients can't function, and yet the market is filled with substandard pot at an exorbitant price. Right. That's not what I dreamt of. Right. But you know what? Yeah. We gotta be patient. Let's let's okay. have this interview so, again in ten so years. So we'll go, but let let let's do a little bit of uh, imagination here. So mm -hmm. say okay, both of you guys, what let let's imagine the best possible cannabis industry. What would that look like? Chris, what would that look like from your end? Uh, well, I was hoping they would treat it more like craft beer. We're here in BC. You can order directly from the craft um, you know, breweries, and it's delivered to you instead of going through um, a government warehouse. Um, I was hoping they would make it a lot easier for the craft growers to transition and the processors. Um, you know, instead of skewing it in a way where really you need extremely deep pockets to to survive to make it for the most part, whether you need, you're a you retailer, need about five processor, million or grower, to apply. you need about five, so, million? about five million to apply. Right, and th and that's for a micro, or that's for a standard license? You think? 
they're almost the same. Well, even micro brewer, you, yeah, you yeah. need a lot of money to yeah. um, to get any of these licenses. Even retail, you you know, you have to look at paying an empty space for a long, long time, and the the licensing fees and everything. It's and um, now they've actually yeah. really made it impossible because now they have a new policy that you got to build up before they look at your application. You have to have a fully compliant yeah, 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 building. Yeah. And by the yes. way, I know I know for a fact they did that to slow the amount of applications to get rid of them. That was sure. intentional. Yes. Because uh, they got 150 producers or something. I, I've lost track. Right. So, okay. So, so so the craft industry should be vibrant, like like the craft beer industry. So how, given the current scenario that we've got with these massive companies are traded publicly, there's, there's now a financial forecast saying that they're running out of cash. The next six months, they're gonna all, most of them are gonna run out of cash um, and that they're not earning a profit. It seems like the, this legalization 1.0 has been a, a massive fail in terms of the federal uh, level of, of the, the licensing and, and distributing the licenses. And then the retail and the provincial uh, scenarios also failing here in Ontario. We've got two lotteries. Yeah, One yeah, is yeah, stayed, yeah. you know, when, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a joke. So it, how can we, how can we get, how can we get the decision makers to see what's going on? You in can't, there? you can't. Uh, it's, it's a matter of time. The legalization of marijuana was still done in a quasi hysterical environment. And most of the media messaging from the government is this is bad for you. We're going to need a decade where marijuana yeah, becomes normalized yeah. and then they start loosening the rules, start mm. loosening the promotion rules, start loosening the advertising rules. Like if you think about it right now, there's a huge industry, but you can't say one positive thing about marijuana publicly. That right. would violate the law. So mm -hmm. you, you got to give them some credit that they did it. There's going to be growing pains. Uh, it is definitely a corporate venture, but come on, what other products do you buy that aren't sort of part of a corporate industry? I mean, that's the way of the world. I, I you know, can't really object to that. I think we need to evaluate this in 10 years, not this year. Right. Uh, it's currently a disaster. It's too soon. It's currently a disaster. And of the 150 companies, there'll probably be 10 left standing. Right. It'll be Molson's, Coors, Budweiser. It's going to be like that. I know it is. There is going to be a bit of a craft industry too. Mm-hmm. But it's just like beer. I mean, the big sellers are the big sellers. While, and it took a while to get the craft And that's beer. the way of the world. That's right. capitalism. Right. And I might have had a romantic vision that people would just grow <laughs> their own, share it. I didn't, when you said, what did I conceive of as the industry? The word industry never entered my vocabulary. Right. I always saw cannabis as countercultural. Mm. So it shouldn't be industrialized. And in fact, I said, the day that it's legalized, I would quit smoking pot is no longer cool right it isn't it's right. not counter right. but, but i realized i like pot too much so i'm still smoking yeah so <laughs> Do, um so let's let's go back 21 years I, I i don't want to take too much of your time chris but i i do want to go back to the original 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 trial and uh, we were all 21 22 years i can't what year was it 96 97 i was older than that 97 22 years yeah, ago. I was in, I was uh, 40. 40. Yeah. Okay. I was 27. Chris, you were 27. Yeah. And yeah. um uh what were some of the uh what was what were some of the the lasting impressions of the trial for you both? What were, what were some of the highlights that that when you look back, you remember and you you know that was an amazing moment. Or that was that was a watershed moment or that was something that really uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, for me, um, 
hearing hearing the judge and you know admit and, and mm-hmm. you know in his decision that it's relatively harmless compared to alcohol and tobacco that was huge even though we lost i was well that was the, that was the achievement that set the yeah. snowball growing no question mm-hmm. that was the big achievement for sure yeah and i remember getting shivers when i heard that part but you know he kept going on and i realized oh well we've actually lost this round but uh you know that did have a lasting impact i think um i mean yeah so many of them i, I just have a little highlights i remember um dr grinspoon meeting I, at the airport this is just a an aside i was gonna give a dr he, grinspoon story okay go yeah. go with yours that's funny yeah <laughs> yeah i had to pick him up at the airport and you know he just got into the car shook my hand chris nice to meet you do you know where i can get some marijuana <laughs> first question he asked and, and then of course it came out later he was had some in his pocket when he was testifying yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know people could smell it in the courtroom yeah. and... <laughs> well in fact that morning what i remember is we were all at the hotel and he came down the stairs and he went to shake my hand and he missed my hand. <laughs> and then I looked at his eyes and I realized it was really high. And I thought that was pretty funny. Still articulate, still a great witness, which goes mm-hmm. to prove the point that cannabis yes. is compatible with productivity. Right. Um, but that was pretty funny. A lot of our witnesses were interesting people. And I don't know if you remember, one of the most interesting things about your trial was that there is only one real expert for the government, Dr. Harold Kalan. That's right. And yet we went to court with him. We picked him up at his hotel and drove him because he associated more with us than he did with the government. That's funny. Yeah. And he actually, Mm -hmm. he gave testimony that wasn't uh, condemning of the His testimony, uh, it was still, for me, the the highlight of, you know, for the appeal was reading, uh, what do you think about, the fact that 600,000 Canadians have criminal records, which was a doctored figure I came up with, which now is like gospel. Hmm. And he, his one word answer, regrettable. Hmm. Yeah. So here was a man right. who knew more about cannabis than anybody in that courtroom. And yet he did feel, and he testified to the fact that he did not believe criminalization was a proper response. And I'm thinking if he can say that, that should influence the judges somewhat. But unfortunately, as we ascended the hierarchy of courts, yes, I knew we were going to lose. We weren't going to get any better than we got in front of McCart because the courts weren't ready. The government wasn't ready. Nobody was ready uh, in the late 90s yet. A couple of other things had to happen to soften up the populace and politicians for pot legalization. And it emanated out of Chris's trial because I knew about the industrial uses because I, I did the, the hemp licenses. I didn't know anything about medical. Mm. And Chris introduced me to two young women. Right. Lynn Harici, an MS patient who is now deceased. And Brenda Rochon, I think was the name. Rochford. Uh, Rochford. And I'll never forget shaking her hand. And there was no no grip. I remember. I interviewed her. I remember her, yeah. It was like rubber. Yes. And so they told me that Chris was helping them get cannabis and how much it was helping them. I did a little bit of research and then we used John Morgan. Yes. To talk about the medical uses. But Justice McCart didn't want to deal with it in our case. He made an error in law, which was fine, which he said, because Chris is not a medical user, you don't have standing to raise the overbreath in your case. That's wrong in law. Right. But we didn't need to challenge that on the appeal because by the time we got to the Court of Appeal, we hooked up with the Parker case, which I also had prepared but didn't argue. So we had the medical issue squarely in front of the court. And they just weren't ready for the recreational one, but they were ready for the medical one. How did it feel to both of you guys knowing that you were ahead of your time and 
you knew, did you, I mean, did you know when you went to the Supreme Court with the case? Did you know when you went up to Court of Appeal? Like the, knowing that the McCart's decision was the best you're going to get, was it defeatist? Uh, was it defeating to, to pursue? No, because it's all education. Half the cases I did had nothing to do with winning or losing in the conventional sense. And I even hate those words in law, winning or losing. Mm. I played the media. I learned how to play the media. So I used a lot of my cases to educate, to soften up politicians. Because ultimately, if you want to change in public policy, it should be done by the legislative branch of government, not the judicial one. Right. But we needed to use the courts as a tool for social change. So no, I didn't feel it was a waste at all. And quite frankly, in the Supreme Court of Canada, which I couldn't participate in because of an illness of my father, we actually had three judges agree with us, three out of nine. Right. That was something. Yes. And it was strong judgment. So, and the no, dissent, dissent, dissent uh, or Boer's dissent. Well, that's what I'm talking about. The three. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 It was very strong. So, none of it was a waste. It was all softening up the world and normalizing cannabis. Mm -hmm. But the nail in the coffin came concurrent. While I did Chris's case, I then met up with Jim Wakeford and Terry Parker, who I'd known for years, and developed the medical arguments. And the government said to me, I remember they said, oh, you don't believe in that. It's bullshit. It's the thin edge of the wedge to get at legalization. Right. And I said, no, no, it's very important. I actually did not believe in marijuana as medicine. I just thought it was a euphoric. It felt good. Right. And so I was using it. And it was successful. The reason why I have legalization today is because we opened up the medical market and then one led to the next. Having said that, I did discover over the years the great medical value that marijuana possesses. But the reality is we know almost nothing about why it works, how it works, and what the different cannabinoids do. So it's very much hit and miss. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it should be developed. And I don't want to talk a lot about medical, but I do want to say that I followed how many studies there are about the tumor-reducing value of cannabinoids. And right. I cannot believe that governments, with all the money they have, are not pouring research monies into cancer-reducing properties of cannabis. That, to me, is just astonishing it, it's it's surreal to me as well i i just interviewed i just did an interview with a woman who had skin cancer and was given a terminal diagnosis and she used she told me rick simpson oil yeah for the course of uh six months to a year now she's cancer free now that and that <coughs> of course that's not substantiated by medical studies but she's alive today there's enough anecdotal studies and as i was saying there's a probably 20 studies in vitro and in vivo, in test tubes and cell cultures, where they're shrinking tumors with various different cannabinoids. And unfortunately, drug development and pharmaceutical development is left to the private sector. I went into Health Canada a year ago, and I said, I'm going to combine and partner with you and the Canadian Cancer Society to do this. I will put it all together as long as you will facilitate some funding for this. And they just said, no, you've got to go to a private sector company. We will not initiate. We will not partner. And I looked at Health Canada officials. I said, Canada can be the front runner in the cure for cancer. That's more important than Alexander Graham Bell and the stupid telephone, quite frankly. Yes. But they, they didn't see it. Right. They didn't see it. So. Right. Chris, what about you? Are, are you exposed to people that are using it for cancer, uh, uh, reducing yeah. tumors? or? Uh, we have... Um... I mean, we, when we were open, we did have lots of people coming in, cancer patients. Some of them were just trying to uh, treat more of the symptoms of the, the treatments they were actually receiving, the chemotherapy and whatnot. 
Um, but others were trying to reduce the tumors. We were having ref getting referrals from an oncologist in Duncan as well. Um, and it's mixed results. You know, some people claim it helped. Sometimes they'll go back to their doctor and the doctors are quite shocked at their progress that they didn't anticipate that. Um, but it doesn't work in all cases. I do know somebody who... Um, you know, went all out, they, they used massive quantities, um, you know, topicals, ingesting it in various ways. And, you know, event, I think it probably prolonged her life, but it didn't cure it. Um, I don't think it's a cure-all for all cancers, but I think uh, it's certainly very promising and certainly for certain cancers. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see more studies done. But as Alan pointed out, there's... Um, you know, it's very difficult for these pharmaceutical companies to patent it. Uh, I know GW Pharmaceuticals recently released... Well, it's not... not um, it's not, it hasn't recently been released, but they produced something, Epi, Epidiolex, I think it's pronounced. Uh, it was recently approved in the United States, but it's something like $30,000 for a, you know, a very small bottle. Right. It's outrageous. And they're, you know, they do have to spend a lot of money on this and it's going to be hard for them to recoup that, I think, because it's, it's basically CBD and THC that, um, you can pretty, can buy for one, one hundredth the price anywhere. Right. Um, yeah, it's too bad that Health Canada wouldn't uh, take Allen up on that. I want to promote Chris for a minute. Can I do that? Please do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you don't understand the significance of his case because it got lost in the shuffle a bit as we went up. But three cases went to the Supreme Court of Canada together. Mm -hmm. Clay, two from BC, Kane and Malmo Levine. Mm -hmm. I want the world to know. That sounds pompous. No, as but hell. you're you're. I want the world to know that all the research that fueled the BC cases and fueled the Parker medical case, all came from Chris's case. It was all the groundwork was done, the witnesses that we put together, the people that Chris you know, brought in, that was the foundation. By the time we got up to the Supreme Court of Canada, the Clay name sort of fell to the wayside, and most mm -hmm. law students know the case as Malmo Levine, which to me is very funny, Right. Um, but that's fine. <laughs> I, I mean, David needs some credit too, I guess, but everything came out of this case. Our record, with the 17 witnesses that had sociology, pharmacology, toxicology, it became circulated in all the other cases and became the building block for every case. So, Chris, it was you use the word front runner, and that's what made me think about it. Yes. His case was the front runner and should get a lot more credit for achieving legalization 20 years later because I think everything stems from that case. What kind of credit do you think he should? Order Canada. I that's, don't know. That's, what, that's what's stirring yeah, up yeah, my yeah. brain. Absolutely. I don't know, but it just, you know, everyone talks about the BC people, the BC people. Yes. And it's almost like this rap thing, the West Coast, East Coast thing. But we did <laughs> extraordinary work here on the East Coast, but everybody was obsessed with the concept of BC bud. Yes. And so they thought BC was the front runner. And very good lawyers out there. I mean, John Conroy's a friend of mine. He's an excellent lawyer. But I don't think any of this would have happened but for Chris's case. Excellent. Chris, I just want to add that um, you know, when, when we did get to the Supreme Court, I personally was still convinced that we were going to win, you know, be victorious. I, uh, it just, it seemed like we had truth on our side and I was an idealist and I was, <laughs> I was quite shocked. I mean, I, it was kind of devastating once we uh, finally got to the Supreme Court and that decision came down. I, I did not expect that. Alan tried to warn me, caution me, but, um, I was convinced we'd win. <laughs> it, it, I guess it was somewhat disappointing, but I have to tell you, it was creating the pathway. You took mm -hmm. the, those cases that challenged the, the prohibition of recreational use. Concurrently, we're opening up a medical market. Suddenly, mm -hmm. 
You've got thousands and thousands of people growing marijuana in Canada because the court ordered that there be a medical program. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, and this is Emery's expression, we overgrew the government. Mm -hmm. right. And that's why they threw in the white towel. They, right. they couldn't prohibit anymore. There was too much of it yeah. in the country and it all started coming out of these cases, in my opinion. Right. It's amazing. So do uh, you think uh, we'll have another uh, interview like this in uh, 20, 20 years? <laughs> yeah, if you're by my graveside. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think I'll remember much of it. Believe me, I'm starting to get a headache trying to remember all this stuff. So. <laughs> well, I, know, um, I don't know if either of you have seen Pete's book, The High Road. but um, Oh, he's got a book. I didn't even know that. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the High yeah, Road? Yeah, it's a book, uh, and it covers quite a bit of the constitutional challenge, too, and, and the days back at Hemp Nation. And um, he had... Um, a co-writer help him with just some of the research and he called me to try to you know tell some anecdotes and it, it's pretty hazy the decades are passing and uh, it's yeah looking back it's it feels like a lifetime ago in some ways <laughs> and it sometimes it feels like yesterday quite frankly i'm not sure True. which yeah. and i you know what as much as i was deeply involved in the pot issue i always refused to write about it mm. i never wanted to do academic writing on my work but in a book I wrote in 2003 called Justice Defiled, yes. I have a chapter called Getting High, which chronicles a lot of what we're talking about here. But right. otherwise, I never really felt the need to write about it. And I should have, actually, because it'd be nice to have the story told. Yes, I think you should write about it. Um, I, I, I wrote a book, too, uh, just to chime in. <laughs> we're all writing books. Uh, Chris, have you, are you going to write a book? Um. Maybe someday. We'll see. <laughs> He's going to be too busy yeah. paying off the victory bonds. Leave him alone. Yeah. yeah. No, you got stores <laughs> to run. Yeah. I'm trying to reopen the original Warmland and add two more locations. And I, I restarted Hemp Nation last October as just a way to keep some income coming in. And uh, it actually it was a wise move in the end. You know, we've sell grow equipment and grow guides and all this stuff. People who want to make it themselves or make their own edibles. And so we've been supplying them. All of the people who are frustrated with legalization are coming back to Hemp Nation. <laughs> nice. I like I, it. I do want to just point out one thing. I just, I'm trying to remember. There was a number of people charged. It wasn't just Chris. It was Sarah. There was a woman. Yes. And then there was the little Jordan. guy. Jordan Prentice. Didn't he just win an Emmy? Yeah. Didn't he just win an Emmy last week, Jordan? Prentice. Someone should check that out because I saw a picture and I was sure it was him. But that's you know, but because he, he is an actor. He's so an actor. Yeah, that's I right. think he won an Emmy. Amazing. Yeah. Oh. Check it out. I, I'm curious. Maybe okay. uh, they. Yeah, I, I mistook him for someone. Okay. Um, the last question before I let you go, Chris. Uh, so you're a dad. I'm a dad. Alan's a dad. My I, I don't know about your your fathers, but um, well, I know I do. I did meet your father. Uh, Chris. Oh yeah, I remember your parents well. And uh, and <laughs> they're in the movie. They're in the movie, right? <laughs> and uh, I I don't know, uh, but I think all of our dads. Maybe I don't know about your dad, but they never talked to me about weed. Never talked to me about cannabis. And now that it's legal, I I have to talk to it. Talk to my sons about sure weed. How do you guys? Do you talk to your kids about weed? And how do you talk about it? Well, yeah, my children. I mean, they've you know they would get dropped off like i'm divorced and so they would get dropped off at the shop sometimes for them it it was just a regular store their dad had a, a can, the, the cannabis <laughs> medicine store they didn't really know that that was illegal or ever illegal and as they got older um 
their mother let it slip that I'd been arrested and they were what what that you know they 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 so the whole story came out about a year ago my my younger two are um 11 and 12 and a half now right um and then yeah so I talked to them a bit about it and uh, they they've heard through the grapevine that legalization was coming so for them it's it's just sort of a regular thing and actually for me it was sort of a watershed moment our local fair the Cowichan exhibition has been running for a hundred and some odd years and this was the first year they had a, they allowed cannabis. Cannabis was sitting there next to the tomatoes and the camera club and, you know, the little blue ribbons. And I went to see it with my children and they just looked at the buds and said, boring. And they moved on to the Lego and stuff. <laughs> you know, that was like we won. That, that made it feel like we won. Despite all the problems, here's the little fair and the... You know, yes. they didn't segregate the cannabis. It was just sort of there with the wine and the giant zucchinis and the scarecrow mm, competition and stuff. And um, so I'm glad that my kids, it's, it's a normal thing. They know they know my history now a bit, how I, I challenge the law and whatnot. But for them, it's just sort of, um, I've had a regular store. It seems like every other store they've gone in. Um, and I, I love that. And meanwhile, my dad finally got his first prescription for CBD recently. Although he had the unfortunate misfortune of ordering it through CanTrust. Uh, oh no! <laughs> lost their license, and yeah, recommended by their doctor. Here's a company you can trust. Order it from this company. Oh, <laughs> God, that's hilarious. So that's yeah. Yes, <laughs> well, I love that story about the couch and fair. That's that's great. Normalization. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. And Alan, do you have? Oh, my, uh, how do you talk to your uh, your son? Oh, we don't talk. <laughs> we don't. No, it's a non-issue for me. First of all, um, either your kids mimic you. Or they do the opposite. Mm. I have a kid who'll do the opposite. Right. So the fact that I'm a pot smoker, he's not going to be a pot smoker. Right. Plus, he's uh, very sensitive to uh, smoke. Right. So it's kind of a non-issue. But if it was an issue, all I would tell him is, if you start to get interested in this, we can talk about it. Because I know a lot about it. But more importantly, I want to smoke the first joint with you, mm -hmm. whether you're 15, 16, 17. I don't care about age. I, I did it 13 because I want my son to have the experience with, in a safe, secure setting. Yes. Not that weird things happen for most people, but I want it to be a good experience, not with his friends, maybe, you know, in downtown or something. And, that's and, what and it... they get anxious or panic. So um, right. that's all I would do. But he knows a lot about it. He Look... Half my friends are, you know, people with records for, for cannabis. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, usually when people came over to my house, within three seconds, we're out on the back porch. I never <laughs> hid it from him. Right. I was a pretty smart kid. Like, I didn't feel I had to deceive him at all. Right. But it's kind of a non-issue. I can tell he hates pot. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Ironic, but funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm really glad you could uh, be available, Chris, to to surprise Alan. This is amazing. Yeah, that was very nice. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, me too. Nice talking to you guys. Take care, Chris. Right. You know what? Next time I'm on the West Coast, I'll look you up. Okay, sounds beautiful. Good. I like that. Okay, bye bye. Bye bye. 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 That was, that if was I hadn't great. seen him last year, that would have been really weird. Right? Like, yeah, yeah. I'll always recognize his voice. I want to show you now. Um, let's see. Show and tell. Show and tell time. I want to show you a video. Of oh, my God. Yes. Okay. This Look is, how long my hair is. This is beautiful. So this, this is you back I right remember before this. the trial. Yeah. Um, I know there's a scroll function here. There we go. I'm going to... I wanted to play... Oh, that's way too far. There we go. Wow. 
I had there hair. Holy yeah. crap. Look at this. Now I want to play play this for you. See what you think about yeah. this. Oh, before I should set up this for sure. listeners. So this is a, a video that I took of you, Alan, in the, I think it was early 97. Yeah, it must've been yeah, early yeah. 97 before yeah. the trial. The yeah. trial was in June. So it must've been, uh, no, I guess mid, it must've must been in June before yeah, yeah, the trial. Cause you, yeah. you were getting a haircut yeah. to look more well, professional. I sure as hell wasn't going to advocate for pot legalization looking like that. Right. Because I didn't want to be associated with the usage, even though I don't hide it. Okay, but look, at, look, at, look at your former self set. Before the tragedy. Before the tragedy. Yeah. When, when was the last time you got your haircut? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's about twice a year. It's not that, not, it's not that I make a political statement <laughs> with my hair, but unfortunately, <laughs> the establishment tends to infer a political statement from it so see i've always i've always thought that the big problem with the issue we're exploring is that people knew there wasn't a real significant social harm involved in all this but unfortunately in the 60s it became associated with counterculture people dropping out people growing their hair long androgyny blah 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 so most judges especially in the jurisdiction I'm going to learn from the old school and they still think in those terms so I have to protect my clients so I'm not going to have my clients affected by my own particular choice of appearance it's so trivial it's ridiculous but in some ways it's probably more important than my argument <laughs> oh my god first of all I can't believe what sort of hippie I was but no I was very conscious of this and I remember, like, I can give you an example. A couple of years later, I was doing one of the medical marijuana cases. Right. And we had the lunch break. Yes. And I went outside. It was sunny and had these glasses that have a tint on them. Right. And I went back into court, and they were all, like, sunglasses. And I was petrified, thinking the judge thought I went out at the break to, to smoke, smoke a joint. joint. <laughs> and, um, now I wouldn't care about that. There's still a little stigma, and I can tell you about that. I see the stigma still. But back then... We were really, you know, in uncharted waters mm. and going into court looking like that, what it looks like is I'm advocating for my right to smoke pot. Uh, and okay. I actually wanted to come across as a person who had no interest in pot. So I had to conceal it. So yeah, it, it's it's astonishing how much images and appearances are sometimes more important than the words you actually use. And that that's a great segue to, to talk about the lawyer as an artist or the lawyer as an actor or the uh -huh. lawyer as a creator. So uh -huh. you're not just creating the intellectual argument for the judge, but you're also the performance is an essential part of how you support your client in the best way possible. Is that is that part of the, because obviously if you didn't care about how you looked, you wouldn't have gotten a haircut. So maybe can you talk a bit about um, how creativity has influenced your lawyerdom? First of all, in terms of performance, we should knock out the performance value of law. That's what's distorting it. And it's more of a trial issue. People showboat and perform. I'm more of a motion and appeal lawyer, so I argue more. Mm -hmm. Appearance was important, but there wasn't a lot of performance in okay. my mind. It's about the construction of a good sequence of arguments that doesn't give the listener the opportunity to go, here's a weak link. 
right. and knock it out. Creativity was important for me because I, I came from an artistic background. I actually never wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, it was a bit of a nightmare for me. And the only way I could see it helping me was it allowed me, art often is the collection of very disparate things that don't go together. If things all go together, it's just like reality and reality is boring. Yes. So I felt that I had a fairly good skill in constructing an argument where I draw on a lot of different resources, not just saying, in the case of R.V. Smith, the Supreme Court of Canada said, you know, look at statistical evidence, even sometimes refer to Dostoevsky without trying to sound pompous or something. So it was just putting together a bunch of disparate things that normally wouldn't be connected I felt made my arguments a bit more unique and more creative. Mm -hmm. But I really can't speak about it because I'm not that self-conscious about what I do. So often I'd be asked by the law school or law society or someone say, will you teach a course or a class on advocacy? And I, I don't know. I just know what I do. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if I reflected on what I did, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. So I'm not really sure how to answer it, but I do like your question about creativity in my legal practice because that's about the only thing I really felt proud of in, in the 34 years. And that's beautiful that, that you have that um, dual side of the brain, but both sides of your brain are functioning. Most lawyers are very, very um, uh, straight yeah, for yeah, a, a lack yeah, of a better yeah, yeah. word. Cookie cutter, robotic. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, did yeah. you notice that in law school when you were teaching that the student body was uh, stiff? A little bit because everybody kind of comes into law school thinking that it's legal science, that A plus B equals C. And if they just learn what A and B is, they can get to C. There's so much subjectivity. There's so much impression. There's so much distortion of fact. You don't know how much the legal profession gets things wrong. So um, I don't know. I, I just really can't talk too much about what I did versus what other people do because it sounds elitist. Everyone's boring. They just play by the ropes to see A plus B equals C. But the students who start to realize that law is what you make it, there's nothing dispositive. There's only things that are persuasive. I don't know if you know the word sophistry from ancient Greek stuff. Mm -hmm. Sophists were people who could spin you around with arguments even though it had no bearing on truth. And that's kind of what we do, unfortunately. I tried to maintain some connection with the truth because I just wouldn't feel good advocating positions that bear no relationship to reality. But ultimately, uh, you're just trying to persuade people of things that there is no right answer to. There are no right answers in law. Mm. And that's what actually made it exciting a bit. But it also makes it very difficult for people to be creative because most people are those sort are of drones. You know, everyone just wants to know how to do the job. And there aren't that many people who want to shake the foundations mm -hmm. or change things. It's hard. It's hard. And generally, you're not respected until you make the change. And everyone comes around and says, oh, you, you were a front runner or whatever word you use. <laughs> but at the time, my parents thought I was nuts. Most of my friends thought I was nuts. Most of my colleagues thought I was nuts. But So where does the urge come from? Why, why the urge to challenge the system because a pot i told you earlier on it mm -hmm. leads to critical thinking mm -hmm. plus i was a child of the 60s so it was all about questioning authority i used to in high school always wear this little badge called question authority i think that's where it came from uh, plus the fact that i had such an aversion 
to lawyers and the legal profession that the only way I could have any sense of worth was to do something a bit different Hmm. and to swim upstream. And by the way, it was awful at the beginning of my career. People thought I was a lunatic, thought I was a media slut. I was insulted. I was dismissed. I was a showboater. I left law for five years because of that crap. Oh, really? But when I come back as a senior old guy, now suddenly my work is brilliant. Hmm. When I did the sex trade thing, suddenly everyone's you know saying, look at the work he does. And I'm saying, that's the same work I did 20 years ago. They thought I was an idiot. Right. Uh, it's a very hierarchical profession. So once I went a little gray, I could make my arguments with greater success, I found. So. <laughs> but you've given it up. Why? So why quit now? There's nothing more for me to do. Uh, I can't wake up any more mornings, look in the mirror and say I'm a lawyer. I just can't do it. I tell people I'm a law professor. Look, lawyers, in terms of public opinion mm-hmm. and public trust, we're at the bottom. We're bottom feeders right. with politicians and journalists. That then okay? stop you in your I'm career, I'm a professor. Though. Okay. We're at the top, scientists, professors, and doctors. So you ask me what I do for a living, I'm a law professor. Mm. I only talk about being a lawyer when we talk about the cases I did. Right. But I don't want to be associated with that profession. And let me say, some of my best friends are lawyers, <laughs> you know, that old line. And there are some really good people doing good work. But I would put it as high as 75% of lawyers should get the hell out of the profession and, and do something that's in their self-interest because they're not helping people. What And what was the, so this urge to tell the world about lawyers and the, the lack of integrity or the lack of, and the, the, the wrongs with the system that your, your book, Justice Defiled, I, I want to go, I want to understand there's something to know that about the profession. There's another thing to want to tell people yeah, about yeah. it. Why, why the urge to tell people about it and to write a book about it? What, where did that come from? I have to from? confess, I, I, I just wasn't comfortable in my skin. I didn't want to be associated with this profession. I wanted to expose its warts. And when I wrote my book, in the preface, I called it a professional suicide note because it was so <laughs> vulgar and offensive that I felt no one would talk to me. But of course, the publishers didn't do a good job selling it. So not enough people read it. So when I got remarried, I had to go back to my job to make money. Uh, I really wanted to get out. It's not just a conceptual philosophical point, right? uh, but it was also personal. Hmm. I was having trouble with lawyers. I was being attacked by lawyers. Um, And I was going through a domestic strife situation. So I was dealing with lawyers. Can I ask how you were attacked by lawyers? Well, I could read you things that think were written about me by establishment lawyers. I was saying I'm a lunatic, I'm a showboater, I'm a media slut. Right. Nobody was recognizing my work. I mean, these are really petty things, some of this. My uh, first wife uh, had an affair with a judge. Mm. That's awful. Uh, made it very uncomfortable for me to appear in that court, which is the court of appeal, which is I'm an appeal lawyer. Um, I had to hire lawyers to help me with the domestic I took two of them to the Law Society because I train lawyers. I take it seriously. You don't do your job. By the way, I've taken more lawyers to the Law Society than anyone on this planet. I have no patience. My big thing beyond the consensual crimes is accountability. Mm. I've challenged cops. I've challenged prosecutors, judges, lawyers. And um, so, yeah, it's just a lot of personal things I hate. Oh, oh, um, I did the Wakeford case, which is medical marijuana. Yes. With a young lawyer who I taught. Because I do most of my cases with someone who has an office, because I don't really have an office at law school. Right. And he had a problem. He had a gambling addiction. 
and we put the proceeds of our home in his trust fund and he gambled it away. I was at the 150,000. Oh my God. So, you know, I have my ex-wife with the judge. I have an ex-law student stealing my money. Uh, I had enough of lawyers. Right. And so I really tried to put an end to it. It didn't work. I came back when I got remarried and lo and behold, because I was older, people were starting to respect what I was doing. Plus the weird thing was at the law school, they thought I was this media hound and I was on television a lot. I'm not sure exactly why, but I had an aptitude for television and they you know, really thought I wasn't doing my job at the law school. I'd run in front of a camera. If I saw a camera, I hated doing television. As soon as I left the law school for five years, they hired a media consultant to train the professors to deal with media. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> but by the time I got back, what I did, they respected. Hmm. And when I did the big sex trade case, instead of criticizing me for being a showboater, they were patting me on the back for bringing attention to the law school. Because I, I do all my cases with students as researchers, so it looks good on the law school. So I kind of got comfortable in my skin when I came back. Right. But I will tell you, 2016, I think it was, I argued a case about strip searches that uh, was a police complaint about the rampant strip searches they're doing. And the complaint bureau said, oh, this is not serious. We don't have to do anything. And I judicially reviewed it in Superior Court in front of three judges. My argument was ironclad and they dismissed it. They did what judges used to do to me back then when I was doing clay and stuff like that. Instead of addressing my arguments, they would either recast them so they could address them hmm. or they drop them. Right. They just so ignore the argument ignore altogether. It. I called it dishonesty in decision making. I, I really saw I had that in my binning career and I hated it. But then when I was a bit older, I noticed they were listening to me more hmm. and they were dealing with my they were engaged with my argument. But then in 2016, I got the dishonest decision making mm -hmm. and I said, that's enough. I'm not going through this again. David Bowie had died around this mm -hmm. time. He was one of my heroes. I thought he'd live forever because he was a good looking man. He was aging well. I realized he was sick from 59, which was my age. He died at 69. I go, I'm not going to spend the next 10 years of my life till I die in front of dishonest judges. Right. And I did get actually a bit of revenge because my last academic article did a critique of the case and I put in all the information they ignored so people will know that decision was dishonest. Nice. You're ahead of the curve in most of your, oh, all of all of the cases that, that you've taken, that you've chosen to take, Correct. have been ahead of the curve and shining a light on an area of law, an area of society that is uh, um, shut down, sure. that is that is uh, demonized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So today, what are you ahead of the curve on now? Nothing. Now, you're nothing? Nothing. But wait a minute. No, no, no. You're, you're, you're a playwright now. I'm, so, going to, I'm going to use art as a hammer to affect social change, but I have no idea what the issues are. And one of the things that's happened, it's almost like a disability coming out of this profession. <laughs> People ask me my opinion yes. about sociopolitical issues or legal issues. I uniformly say I have no opinion. Right. I got so sick of having opinions and expressing them and arguing over them. They're like poison to me. Mm. I want to be the most unopinionated person and write to make people think mm -hmm. to develop their own opinions. So it's weird when I watch television now and I used to be on there, I used to do these shows, the, the circuits and, and answer all the questions on the little clips. Yeah. 
And as soon as the legal thing comes on, I change the channel. I can't listen to people. And here's the other reason. All the issues I would talk about today are the same issues I talked about 20 years ago. The law never really addresses the issues. They, they put a little bit of blanket on and a little sugar coating and still say the debate we're having about how to sentence people, punish mm -hmm. people, which is a big conceptual philosophical issue of mine, is the same thing I was talking about in the late mid-80s when I worked for the Canadian Sentencing Commission. How is it that we're talking about the same goddamn thing 30 years later? Mm. Everything in law moves in a glacial way. Right. I tried to accelerate things as best I could. I'm done. Right. And I've trained enough students that I do know there are some out there, and I could name them, that are going to continue work like this. Okay. The only difference is I had the luxury of a decent salary at a university. This is the that problem. That allowed me to work for free. Right. People can say I'm a saint for doing $10 million of legal work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a nice thing I did. But I had the luxury of having a job that pays me a full-time salary for effectively part-time work. I don't care what any professors say. It's a cushy job. How, so, okay. I want to I backtrack to- But I just want to say okay. my students yes. out there in practice have to pay their bills. That's right. And for example, Bedford, which is the sex trade case, I had to estimate what the cost would be if it was done in private litigation because I was asked to. Right. It's over a million dollars. How many right. young lawyers can afford to can't. absorb a million dollars? Yeah, they yeah. can't. They can't. And by the way, I couldn't. I'm retired now. And I like everybody that I work for for free to come meet me and give me some cash. That would be really nice. I but, think victory bonds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But anyways, <laughs> that ship has sailed. So. Yeah. <laughs> You never know. There's some good uh, good companies uh, making cannabis out there. I'm not going to name names, but there are people that I know have money now that have not returned to me, and that's fine. Well, we can we can help you. Let now, me tell you something. Everybody likes the word karma. Mm. No fucking karma in the world, okay? It, it may be a happenstance. May, sometimes good people get rewarded. Sometimes bad people get punished. But most of the time, it's a roll of the dice. You do good work for the sake of doing good work. Art as a hammer. I stole that from somebody. I like it. So, okay. What is your hammer, not what is, a mirror? What is, uh, not a mirror. Okay. Because I always I, I always thought about art being reflecting on people. Yeah, 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 and yeah. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. you know, there's that theory. But as a hammer, what's your current hammer? <laughs> I don't know yet. I, I'm sorry. I don't know. I wrote my first play in retirement about the rise of white power, Trump, and anti-Semitism. What was it called? Surviving the Blood Feud. And it's an uplifting play because the neo-Nazi transcends his stupidity to actually rescue the Jewish journalist. I don't tend to write uplifting things, but I want to show the world you can get beyond the narrow blinders that you've been given in your background. It is possible. The second play I wrote is called Cause and Effect. Oh, and by the way, one of my former clients who never paid me is paying to put this on for one night oh, at Trinity College, karma. February 1st. <laughs> Except the, the the cost of putting on the play is maybe a third of right. the retainer. Okay. But that's fine. No, no, no. You it's do a, a cross-country it, tour. It's a wonderful thing he's okay. doing because I've gone from law to theater. People knew me in law. Nobody knows me in theater. I try mm. to use my background and my Wikipedia page and all this stuff, but it means nothing to them. Right. But now I have an opportunity and, and I'm going to invite all the media people that I used to do interviews with, the, the Peter Mansbridges, the Lloyd Robertsons, you know, half these people are going to be coming in wheelchairs, I think. But um, <laughs> I want to show them that there was something other than me just being what they called clipomatic, which is talking about legal opinions in one minute, 30 second clips. Yes. And so, okay, so tell me about your play, the one that's, uh, that's going up. It's a series of short scenes, 10, 
that all reflect on some aspect of mass murder. So the first scene's a mother of a mass murderer. The second scene's a cop at a press conference talking about the killings. The third is a dysfunctional family that breeds a mass murderer. The fourth is a social worker at a commission who missed all the signs of the madness. It goes on like that for 10 scenes. Each one's about five minutes or so. And it, they're, they're all punches to the stomach. Yes. And then there's a little bit of comedic value because no one wants to be punched in the stomach for 10 rounds. Right. So there's a gun salesman right. who's extolling the virtue of guns, right. almost like models on a runway. There's a research scientist who discovered through some regression analysis that you can become a mass murderer if you eat too many frosted flakes and recapture in the rye at the same time. So there's stuff like that. Right. Um, I have no clue if the play is good, but I'm putting it on. And I just came from Montreal where a young woman who just graduated from Concordia, she's the daughter of a friend of mine, is going to put a little troupe together nice. to put this on. Ah. So I'm very excited. The art is a hammer thing is really pompous. I do want to change people's opinions with art, but I haven't actually reached the level of thinking that way. I'm just writing right now. And my third play, which I'm working on because the first one's white power, mass murder. The third one has to be lighter. So it's about masturbation, which is a metaphor for the digital disconnection we all have. You know, Fantastic. None of, none of us touch each other or talk to each other. Right. You have a working title? Yeah, it's called A Manual for Living. It's all worked out. I just got to find yeah. the time to write it. Nice. Which is unbelievable. I said, I got to find the time to write. I'm retired. You got nothing I got to else find to the energy to write it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where do you get inspiration for a mass murder play? Okay. Or, you know, where, where does I that come be, from? I could come full circle in this interview and say, oh, it's because I smoke pot. That's nonsense. Right. But here's what pot does allow you to do. And it actually helped my legal career. Actually, this is interesting for you. <clears throat> I had more time than lawyers. Lawyers who work are working around the clock. They work hard. They could never put a lot of energy into things. My gift in my job was it wasn't time consuming. So when I went home at night and if I sit on the balcony smoking a joint, I could let my mind drift for the next 40 minutes on my case. Mm. And that's where sometimes the disparate connections would come in the creativity. It was a product of time and pot. The significance of pot was not giving me creativity. I've never felt that way maybe, you know, when I was 16. Right. The significance of pot, and this is why I smoke pot, is it dissolves time for me. Mm. I'm a type A person. I'm a multitasker. I can tell you I'm going to spend 40 minutes on this letter, then 20 minutes on this phone call, and, the, and that's how I do my days. And I'm very accurate. It's wonderful. It makes me productive and effective, but it makes me a bit uptight all right. the time. Right. The only time I don't know what the what the clock is saying, what time it is, is pot. Like, I'm a little bit out of time right now because we've been talking a long time, but I'm guessing we're probably, you know, we started at 1.30. We're probably 2.20, something like that. Yeah, we're 2.36, yeah, right yeah. on. Yeah. That, that's actually not accurate for me. I'm usually within five minutes. But if I was high, <laughs> right, which I'm not at the moment, I might go, it's three or is it one? I have no clue, and that's liberating for me, and that's what allows me to sit on my balcony and let my mind drift to, if I argued this case in this way, how it would turn out. So Pod did contribute marginally to some of my success. I don't see it as triggering creativity other than allowing me to relax enough to let my brain be creative. That's the way I kind of see it. Nice. And that's why I don't quit smoking at my age because I'll never stop being locked in time because I worked for 34 years mm -hmm. and that's how I function. 
So the only thing that even when I sit with my friends, you know, I'm always like, oh God, I got to go. And I was like, I have nowhere to go now. But pot makes me realize that when I sit down. Right. That oh, I don't have to figure out when to leave. So. Right. A little holiday maybe. Yeah, little... kind of. I'm not even sure what it is. And this comes back to my original comment. It's a chameleon drug. It gives people different types of experiences. You know, they said some people are giggly. Some people are introspective. Everybody's a bit different. Mm -hmm. For me, it's just I can sit and not notice the passage of time, which allows me to be creative. So to close our, our interview, and I, of course, I, I would like to talk to you all day. I, sure. I love, I I got, love I, I'm uh, retired. Let's you go. You got nothing else to You're not to threatening do. me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do, I do want to bring the interview to a close. So I, I figured, I, look, I'm just experimenting. This is my first podcast. Yeah, so yeah, in my yeah. first interview, so I, I thought I'd just throw this out there. Um, you want to know about my sex life? Is that where you're going? No. Okay, good. <laughs> the way you were building up, it sounded like it's a very personal question. Well, it is a personal okay, question. Okay, yeah. So if, and you know, this is maybe a little morbid, but I think you're okay with that. <laughs> okay. If you walked out today and for some reason you died, something happened, you just fell on the sidewalk, had a heart attack or a bus hit, sure. or some, something happened and you died, what would you regret not doing or not saying to someone? Oh, come on. What, are you going to put me through like the 12 steps of AA now? Wow. Um, it's an experimental question. Yeah. So, you know, feel free to adjust. This is going to be weird after our conversation, but I think it makes sense. I have one huge regret. I went into law. Mm -hmm. I'm now scrambling as a 62-year-old trying to write plays where if I would have stayed true to myself, I might be a Governor General award-winning playwright by now. I have a lot of confidence in, in that part of my life. Other things I'm very underconfident. I wasted way too much time. Having said that, I have a good sense of self-worth and I sleep well at night because I helped a lot of people. Right. Um, and so that that's good. So that's a regret. What else do you ask, Grant? And we'll talk to somebody? It, well, oh, I wow. think, I, you know, it, what would you regret not saying something to someone? It's broad. No, no, it, it's a tough question because, you know, I've been married twice. Yeah. So I can think of lots of conversations I'd like to have with people that I spent many years with that we just grew, become strangers. Oh. You know, like little trivial things. Like I can't think of anything right. major. I don't have any major regrets. And you know the thing I said about my career? That sounds major, but I also call my career a brilliant mistake. So I do see the value in it, but I don't walk around a lot regretting things I've done or I haven't done. Things are what they are mm -hmm. and I've made mistakes and I can't think of any that I go back to rectify, which maybe makes me sound like I'm not very reflective. Well, but I, I can't think of anything. You, you know, uh, your, your answer of, becoming a lawyer as a regret it's something that i share i know you. that i know that and 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 so it, you know when you, when you said it immediately i i started to well up with tears because it you don't want to feel that way when you're 62 do you no i don't yeah. i don't and i have no i've never had any desire to be a lawyer and and yet here i am a cannabis lawyer calling myself a cannabis lawyer and very interested and passionate about cannabis law sure. and because of for me the inane and st stupidity that has occurred and continues to occur with this very amazing but remember, plant. Remember, 
if you're doing work that is not just enhancing your self-interest at the expense of other people's conflicts, you're doing good work as a lawyer, mm. okay? I object to the lawyers exploiting the fact that people are in distress and conflict and charge of $50,000 for something that really is not worth $5,000. Right. But if you're doing God's work, I'm not religious, but that's the way I refer to it. Right. Being a lawyer is fantastic. And you know, <clears throat> a lot of my friends and family have used that expression, I do God's work. It wasn't just the pro bono work, it was also because the wrongful conviction work. Right. And yeah, I do feel good about that. It just should have ended in 2000 when I wrote my book. Right. I shouldn't have gone back. Right. But was, some of my greatest work was done after I came back because now I was being respected as a more senior litigator. But uh, life is short. Mm -hmm. It does go a lot faster than you think. And when I meet people, uh, like my students, young people, because a lot of people come to me and ask for advice on their futures because I'm a professor, I just say be true to yourself. And if you can't be true to yourself, try to make enough money so you can be true to yourself when you're old. You know, one <laughs> of the two, right? But... I don't know. We all we all sort of stumble through our choices, make some good choices and bad. But it's weird you asked me the question because it's making me feel weird that I don't have regrets. I should be able to list a whole bunch of regrets. <laughs> Look, but then it gets really highly personal. You know, my sister died at a very young age. I can think of a thousand conversations I'd like to have with her, mm -hmm. which I didn't. But I just don't kind of, those don't occupy my, my head. Those aren't the thoughts I have. Right. Uh, so yeah, I'm not really sure. Well, I, I've had such a good time today with you. Cool. You know, I, I want to do this again. Well, yeah, uh, there's other things so, we can talk about. Yes. And we, by the way, I think we just hit the tip of the iceberg. I agree. You didn't even let me tell you why cannabis is legal, right? Well, no, you never did. No. Why, so, do you want my answer? I do. Why okay, is I don't it know legal? if we're going over time. Yeah, let's go. Uh, there's no time okay. here. This is through my lens, but I was there. I was watching it unfold. So there's three reasons. Let's see if I can get this straight. Yes. One was dissemination of information. That's the drug literature prohibition. Remember I said the first thing I challenged was drug literature. Yes. So suddenly high times, grow books could be sold. Yes. You started to get people exposed to, to... Other, things other than government propaganda. So free flow of information. Two. The medical, thin edge of the wedge. Mm -hmm. When they disbanded the program in 2013, there was something like 30, 40,000 licenses. So they needed to curtail that. Right. And then they went corporate. And that led to the third, right. money. money. Once the corporations were invited in to take over the medical production, I met them all. They all came to me. I got the second license in Canada for people. These were not people coming because they were lovers of cannabis and were happy with the change. They all had dollar signs in their eyes. Right. And each and every one of them, I told the same thing. I said, you're not gonna make money off sick people and don't talk to me about this because it's just rude and callous. But if you got enough capital, hang in for five, six years because the recreational market's coming down. Because once the infrastructure is set up, once they announce companies will do this, mm -hmm. It, it was written in stone. Right. Once you allow money to infiltrate a market, it takes on a life of its own. Hmm. So it was dissemination of information, the creation of a medical program, and money. And there was a fourth thing looming. The U.S. let go. Right. We came close in the 2000s. The liberals even there were talking about depenalization. But the Americans 
we're talking about retaliation. Mm. Once Colorado and Washington went, the Americans lost their credibility, even though the federal government still has their law. So you put those four things together and we have legalization, but it was a corporate venture. right? And that's why, as we spoke earlier, it's not quite the market that we want it to be because of poor quality cost. But those things will change eventually. Companies eventually get it right. Right. So. Hmm. That's okay. That, that's why it happened. Beautiful uh, uh, summary of of why we have legalization today. And it was inevitable, mm -hmm. but it needed the money component. Right. Governments are really good at holding on to misinformation, even in the face of contradictory evidence. So that didn't bother them. But once the money was circulating and these big companies uh, were coming in to get licenses, that was the end of it. It was just a matter of two years. Do you think the thousands of medical growers are going to be shut down no. or do you think they're going to be absorbed into the licensed market somehow? I don't think they'll shut them down for at least a decade because they have a valid argument that pushing them into the legal market is not giving them what they want, both in terms of quality and price. In 10 years, with a lot of strains, good quality, low price, they may not have an argument. But by then, I don't think government will care about people growing pot. And it might not even be four plants anymore. They may do as many as you want with ESA approval, electrical mm -hmm. safety approval. Mm -hmm. So we got to do the interview in 10 years. Yes. It'll be a fundamentally different interview, I think. I can't wait. Yeah. Cool. Hey, thank you so okay. much, Alan. Pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us for this great interview. And uh, we had a nice surprise with Chris Clay. I just want to say that this podcast was recorded again in Toronto on September 28th, 2019. The podcast engineering was done by Jeremy Benning at Treehouse. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode of Cannabis Law in Canada.